Tēnā koutou, no mai, haida mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tay. Today, the new cases continue to stack up. If we're sticking with an elimination strategy, is it the right call for Auckland to move to level two? Once a hacker, now a senior government minister, a key player in Taiwan's COVID-19 success. In Taiwan, our counter-disinformation strategy uh, is very simple. It's called humour over rumour. And does America need its own domestic peace summit as President Trump paints a scary picture for life under his opponents? No one will be safe in Biden's America. My administration will always stand with the men and women of law enforcement. But we begin, of course, with COVID-19. In May of this year, when New Zealand first moved to Alert Level 2, the shift coincided with three days of no new community spread cases. Zero, zero, zero. But this, uh, this time, as Auckland prepares to join the rest of the country at Alert Level 2, health officials are still confirming multiple new cases of community transmission. Yesterday's count, 11 new community transmission cases. The latest advice is that anyone living in South and West Auckland should have a test, even if you don't have symptoms. So, if we are still pursuing an elimination strategy, should our biggest city be extending the lockdown? Professor Nick Wilson from Otago University is with us this morning. Maureen, welcome to Q&A. Kia ora, Jack. Should Auckland be moving to level two tonight? Well, I think the elimination strategy is definitely the best one New Zealand uh, has to go for. And as part of that, I think it does require a pretty firm and uh, strong approach to the current Auckland outbreak. And so I would like to really see something like a level 2.5. And at that level, we could really push the issue of uh, masks, masks on uh, public transport, uh, in, in workplaces, in schools and social gatherings. And that would allow us to free up some of the economic uh, mm. restrictions, but also keep that level of health protection. We know that there is going to be a requirement for people on public transport, for example, to be wearing masks at all times, but are there other provisions that a level 2.5 might have? Well, I think it actually could cover areas like bars and nightclubs uh, with uh, uh, tighter restrictions, because we know that those mm. settings have caused quite major outbreaks in places like South Korea, Hong Kong and Japan. So they're places where people are often talking loudly, uh, maybe not using masks, maybe getting uh, uh, drinking too much and maybe being slack on hygiene. So I, I think some of these settings we need to take a more targeted approach so we can free up the rest of the economy but focus on the high-risk environments. So, so when, you, when you talk about bars and restaurants, do you mean close them? Uh, probably or restrict the uh, hours uh, and uh, definitely focus on uh, you know, really minimising the risk of uh, you know, people mm. getting drunk and sla slackening up on the hygiene issues. OK, let, let's have a look at uh, a public health warning issued by the Ministry of Health on Facebook at about 5 o'clock last night. Important message. If you're in South or West Auckland, please have a test. Pretty simple there. Language that indicates anyone, regardless of their symptoms, in South or West Auckland should be having a test. About half a million people. What does that message tell you? Well, it shows that we don't have a really strong idea of what is happening with this particular cluster. There's still quite a lot of... Uh, 
links that haven't been identified, and that's why testing is absolutely uh, essential. But I would have hoped by this time we had uh, a more we could have more focused approach, uh, and that's mm. the problem. We're, we're still having a lot of new cases being identified, uh, and that's why we need more of these sort of protections like widespread mask use to really mm. uh, reduce transmission and so we can rapidly move back to our elimination status. Yeah, it's interesting to consider Auckland's position now compared to New Zealand's position back in May when we, when we all moved to alert level two for the first time. 11 new cases yesterday. As I just pointed out, the last time we moved to level two, there were three consecutive days with zero cases. Do you think uh, the, the willingness to move to alert level two is purely, this time, is a purely health-based decision or is this political? Well, I think it's it's completely appropriate for uh, governments to look at both the health issues and the economic issues. Mm. Uh, but potentially it can be win-win. If we use tools like uh, mask use and have widespread testing and keep improving our contact tracing, mm. we can be like a place like Taiwan, which never had a lockdown and has achieved uh, uh, remarkable results, better than New Zealand in many ways. So uh, if we take that approach and are very smart mm. with the tools we use, we can actually ease up on the economic restrictions and keep uh, progressing on the health front as well. But you see what I'm asking here? I mean, I mean it's... You know, it is, it is interesting to consider the differences in the number of community transmission cases from earlier this year. And obviously, we have significantly improved our contact tracing capacity since that time. But I'm just wondering if there has been a subtle change in strategy here. Uh, not that I can really detect, but, uh, you know, as you say, we have improved contact tracing, so we've mm. got more confidence. We've got uh, really good uh, genomic epidemiology, so we're uh, identifying uh, these viruses at the genetic level, and we can make links that way, so that's a big improvement. And we are, at least uh, with public transport, bringing in masks as a valuable tool. So we do have more tools available than we did uh, when moving to level uh, down levels last time. So I'm a bit more confident about that. But I, I would really like us to follow the other countries that have made really good use of things like widespread mask use. Do you think we should have uh, improved our mask use earlier in the response to COVID-19? Absolutely. We should have brought in masks at uh, level four uh, last time and got used to them and built up uh, uh, the supplies and so on. In fact, uh, many of us have been strongly recommending that the Ministry of Health move on masks for actually about four months now. Uh, so, you know, this is this will be seen as one of the failings of the government's response not to move on this low-cost and highly effective uh, technology. Why haven't they moved sooner? Well, I think because of the success achieved with the border control and the lockdown, uh, there was a sense of complacency that we didn't mm. need these other tools. Uh, but that was a mistake because we've seen other countries have outbreaks, so we should have been using the last three months to uh, get these tools in place and as well as that improve things like the digital technology that we need to improve our contact tracing further.
It's so there's been some gaps. Yeah, it's interesting to, to compare New Zealand's response with that of Taiwan, which has effectively been leading the world in its COVID-19 response. We'll, we'll be speaking with a Taiwanese government minister soon who says that Taiwan has gone from about a 92% compliance rate with, with mask use in public places to about a 96% compliance rate. Do you think that um, there is perhaps some social resistance in New Zealand where people are, are less normalised to wearing masks when it comes to, to, to wearing masks at these lower alert levels? I think this is the problem with a voluntary system. And when you look at other Western countries where masks have been uh, used, it's nearly all mandated. And mm. uh, we've seen the you know very high levels of mask use now in Victoria uh, in Australia. So uh, I think there's no no problems once there is a clear direction and a steer and you see everyone else around you wearing masks, it makes it much easier to do. Professor, what about our border? Do you think it is the right approach to continue quarantining new arrivals in our biggest cities? I, I really think we need to review this. It's, uh, you know, it is highly problematic if you have a failure with your quarantine facilities to have them in big cities as they all are now and as well as that hotels are really not designed for quarantine purposes they don't have the right airflow you have these shared spaces so that's why looking at options like uh, putting all these isolation quarantine facilities in, onto military bases like Ohakia where it could be a one-stop mm. shop the plane flies in people do their quarantine and it's in a completely uh, enclosed facility. You don't have, uh, you could have all the workers on the on the base. So I think we need to look at these options and do quarantine at a much higher level of quality. Do, because this Auckland uh, outbreak may actually be a, uh, a quarantine failure. And in fact, the maintenance worker being infected at the Ridges Hotel is a, is a failure of the uh, border system because off the shared space issue. Mm. All right, Professor Nick Wilson, thank you so much for your time this morning. If you are in South or West Auckland and you're wondering where to get a test today, go to the Auckland Regional Public Health we uh, Service website. There it is there, arphs.health.nz. So, you know, Jacinda Ardern is going to hold a press conference at one o'clock today and you can watch that live here on TVNZ1. After the break, how quickly can Air New Zealand recover from its worst loss in nearly 20 years? And will air travel be the same when it does? CEO Greg Foran is with us live. And after a number of health scares, a new government proposal to reform water management. Why do some councils fear the worst? Everyone in New Zealand is going to be significantly affected by this. Hokimai, welcome back to Q&A. A few sectors have been smashed by COVID-19, quite like the international travel industry. Just think about this. Air New Zealand started 2020 with a billion dollars in cash. This week, that pot had dropped to less than a quarter of the size, $245 million. Still, so far the airline has held off accessing a $900 million backstop loan from the government after making significant staffing and operational cuts. So where to now? CEO Greg Foran is with us on Q&A this morning. Morena, welcome to the programme. Morena, Jack, and thanks for having me. Auckland moves to alert level two tonight. That means that masks will be compulsory on all public transport, including Air New Zealand flights. Are you confident you can keep 
your staff and your passengers safe? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we've been operating with masks and PPE gear now basically since, uh, since March when all this unfolded, Jack. So we, we're well rehearsed in what we have to do and we're certainly all organised for what we you know, are facing in the coming week here mm. in terms of mandatory mask use. And, you know, there's other things that we do on planes as well um, to ensure people's safety. And, of course, we've got social distancing in place on the planes for a period of time as well. So lots to be reassured about and we're all organised and ready to go. It is such a tough time for the airline industry at the moment. You announced uh, a loss of $454 million for the financial year this week. Are you brave enough to predict when your industry might return to pre-COVID operations? Gee, that is such a, a good question, Jack. And the reality of the situation that we're faced with is that it's really difficult to predict what is going to happen. You know, when we cast our minds back to the 11th of March and that was when we first were dealing with people re-entering the country and having to go into self-isolation and moving from levels one, two, three and four and then of course back down again and then, you know, on the 11th of August we suddenly find ourselves back on, on level three in Auckland, level two around the rest of the country. It's just so hard to predict what's going to happen. You know, I can tell you that we were pretty confident of being up and running in the, you know, in the Cook Islands about now, mm. you know, around about four to five weeks ago. And, you know, I was feeling reasonably buoyant about what might happen across the Tasman with Australia. But what we're dealing with here is a really tricky, complex, difficult problem. And what we're having to do is maintain, you know, high degrees of flexibility as we work through this. At some point, I'm confident that we will get solutions to this. You know, vaccines mm. will get developed. But of course, you know, whether everyone takes them and how effective they are and the ability to get them distributed is all yet to be, you know, solved. But I'm confident that in a matter of years, and I think it will be years, we'll be back to some degree of normal flying activity but I suspect, um, you know, for quite a period of time, it's going to be smaller than what it was previously. Mm. With so much uncertainty then, can you rule out more job losses in the future at Air New Zealand? Already, of course, about 4,000 staff have lost their jobs at the company. Yeah, look, with this degree of unpredictability, you sort of have to deal with, you know, what you've got in front of you right at this point in time. And I can, you know, tell you, Jack, that at this stage, we have no plans to make any more changes to what we've got in terms mm. of staff numbers. Now, you can't rule out what may happen in the future, but at this point, there are no immediate plans for anything else. The government, which is your majority shareholder, has of course made that $900 million backstop loan available. You haven't accessed that loan yet, but could the government be doing more to support Air New Zealand? Yeah, as you, as you know, they are a key partner in Air New Zealand, a 52% shareholder, and just in terms of the loan, uh, we are at that point uh, of literally drawing the first bit of that down. It's about when we forecasted it would be. Um, in terms of you know moving forward, 
uh, we continue to be in discussions with the government about what the capital structure of Air New Zealand could look like. And those discussions continue. Uh, there's no decisions at this point, but you know we're deep in discussions with them. How much of the loan will you be drawing down at this stage? Well, it really depends, uh, you know, it, in terms of what we want to do in terms of working with the government on the longer-term capital structure. In relation to how the loan works, we basically draw down what we mm. require in instalments, and you know that's to ensure that the interest costs are kept down. Longer term, we'll need to think about with the government what the capital structure looks like, and as I said, discussions continue, uh, but no decisions at this point. Is it a possibility that the government could take a larger stake in New Zealand sometime soon? Well, they have indicated to us that they want to maintain the majority shareholding that mm. they have. And, you know, in terms of how that plays out, that will be part of the discussions that we're having at the moment. So we'll just have to wait and see. How important is, is capitalisation right now? When you, when you cast your mind forward and you think to, to a post-COVID future, how important is capitalisation in terms of positioning Air New Zealand against some of its competitors? And are there competitors who you think are better positioned to perhaps take more market share? Well, certainly we're going to be in for a changed environment, and with that will come opportunity. You know, the first thing that not just Air New Zealand, but all airlines around the world are doing at the moment is reducing cash burn. Mm. And they're doing that through a variety of measures. They're, you know, having a look at, at obviously what their costs are of running their business. And that's not just staff costs, that's looking at things like real estate and supply chain. But they're also having a look at what their capital expenditure plans are. Um, they're considering, as we are, what the forward orders of planes look like and you know when we need may need to take those mm. or should we defer some. As you sort of cast your mind further forward, there's no doubt that the industry is going to look a bit different and we're going to see, you know, lots more changes start to unfold as these things occur. And I suspect that many of us will continue to look at every cost we've got on the business to ensure that we're well positioned to operate. Having the right capital structure is really important mm. to allow you to do that, particularly when you're talking about investment in the airline. And, you know, one area in particular that I'm really keen that Air New Zealand invests in is in digital, because there's so much more that we can do in the space to improve both the experience of our customers and also to improve the efficiency of the organisation. Greg, as a, as a business leader, do you think New Zealand needs to have a tougher conversation about the broader COVID-19 recovery and how we can avoid leaving a monstrous debt to the next generation? Yeah, again, a good question, Jack, and it is such a wicked problem because in so many of these things, what you see depends on where you stand. And as I speak to many of my colleagues who I've worked with in various countries around the world, different countries are taking different positions on this. Um, I think this is still unfolding a little bit in terms mm. of what the right strategy is. You know, elimination, which is the direction that we've been heading down, comes at a cost. 
Um, equally, as I talk to many of my colleagues in the United States, I see some of the challenges there as they're dealing with the re-emergence of mm. COVID. So this is a situation which is still playing out. And I guess as these things mm. play out, keeping options feels to me like a, a good position to be in. At this stage, do you feel confident that elimination is the best strategy for New Zealand? Um, at this stage, that's something that the government is pretty set on, on heading down. We're doing our level best to make sure that we do everything that we can to support that and obviously support our, our crew who are having to deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. You can imagine with 50 flights heading off overseas each week, moving cargo, which is a great thing that we're doing for the country, but also moving passengers. Um, you know, our, our staff are doing a terrific job managing through mm. what is a really difficult situation. Uh, elimination is a position at this stage and Air New Zealand um, is supporting that and doing everything we can to assist. You don't sound convinced there, if, if, I, if I can be frank. I mean, in your unique position with the insights that you have as to our economy and the global economy, do you think that we may have to reconsider the elimination strategy in the coming months? Um, Jack, I think as I see it playing out, it is clearly a very, very difficult virus to control. And, you know, whether or not you're talking about um, the situation we find ourselves in with, you know, clusters cropping up, uh, or then we head down the path where we're starting to see, you know, people being infected again, it may be that we end up in a situation here where trying to eliminate it completely actually becomes almost impossible. Mm. In which case, we're then likely to have to deal with a case of learning to live with it and manage our way through it very, very carefully. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. E New Zealand CEO, Greg Foran. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. We're going to bring in our panel after the break. And then later, Audrey Tang has gone from child prodigy to computer hacker to one of Taiwan's youngest government ministers. How can we better use technology to combat COVID-19? And with the US election just two months away now, Republicans have made their convention pitch. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. It's time to get the thoughts of our panellists. Auckland Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Michael Barnett and Josie Pagani, who's a political commentator and Director of the Council for International Development. Michael, I will begin with you this morning. Auckland is set to move to alert level two at midnight tonight, but 11 new cases of community transmission announced uh, yesterday. Do you still think it's the right move for Auckland to move to level two? Uh, yes, I do, and I, th I think it's a part of um, recovery, and it's recovery um, not only for business, but people and their lives. And if we go into this with an abundantly clear message from government of what they want, and if it's about masks and if it's about distancing, we can do all those things. But I think as a community, 
that Auckland is ready to go into level two. It's a difficult call though, isn't it, Josie? Because the last time when, when New Zealand as a whole moved to alert level two, there were three consecutive days with zero cases of community transmission. This time mm. round, there seems to have been a, a slightly, a bit of a shift in the approach. Yes, it's interesting, the two interviews you've just had, so Dr Nick Wilson, epidemiologist, and of course Greg from Air New Zealand from the business perspective, mm. um, you know, Nick arguing, OK, let's continue with elimination, but look, we've got all these other tools in the toolbox that we need to use more effectively, whether it's um, man mandatory masks, uh, whether it's um, uh, you know mandatory social distancing and uh, looking at increasing the testing and the tracing and, and improving our ability to trace, you know, maybe with some sort of digital card or whatever. So, and I think you're hearing from, from Greg too, I mean, you could drive a truck through the gap when you asked him the question, is elimination the strategy for the future and he paused you know so I think that tells us that yes we're reluctant to have that conversation we want to believe that elimination is going to work I want to believe it's going to be out and not here but but we're worried that maybe that's a three to five month strategy mm. maybe it's not a three to five year strategy and and if we're in this for a few years is elimination sustainable? Can we actually secure the border? Mm. And it's looking like we may not be able to do that 100%. So how do we live with it? How do we suppress the virus? How do we carry on working and earning and uh, living as a community and, and suppress the virus? Michael, you've been active in voicing the concerns of many businesses in Auckland throughout this secondary lockdown. Do you still feel that elimination is the best strategy for New Zealand as a whole? I actually believe that containment uh, I, is going to be the best strategy when I have a look at the, uh, the roles that we all have to play. Um, I think some of those need to be addressed and addressed more severely. And when I look at uh, government, for example, and track and trace, um, that we're using the technology we're mm. using at the moment is wrong. We should have gone to Bluetooth, and in my opinion, the government should uh, do a public-private partnership. I don't care if it's Sam Morgan that they do it with or me, but somebody is going to have to do something more sophisticated. We need to be confident at the border, and that's not just the airports, it's our seaports and so on as well. So I think there's a number of things we need to do and do better. There needs to be more social, um, personal responsibility. Mm. I need to take responsibility, but I need to know, and businesses need to insist with their people, if it's about masks or about social distancing, but those messages and the responsibility for them we need to be taking and taking more seriously. Yeah, Dr. The result could end up being elimination. Dr Nick Wilson you know, was clearly exasperated that, that the government mm. hasn't more aggressively promoted mask use, even mandating mask use over the last few months. But Michael, just how tough have, have businesses in Auckland been doing it in this second lockdown? Um, in the second lockdown, uh, t to me, we're starting to see some of the carnage, but we're seeing over 30% of businesses at the moment talking about restructure. Over a quarter mm -hmm. of retail are unsure as to their likelihood of, uh, of continuing. So to me, I think we're going to see the tail of this come out over the next little while. When you listen to Greg, and Greg said they're just going to dip into the government's money now, 
let me tell you, there are tens of thousands of businesses out there that don't have that pocket of money that they can dip into. And that, to them, has been the big, big problem. There's been nothing for business. There's been a wage subsidy. That's been great for employees. But there's mm. no bucket of money. There's no, nothing there to, to support businesses with cash flow. It's a very difficult position for the government right now, isn't it, Josie, with an, uh, with an mm. election so close. Do you think they will be open to the possibility of moving from an elimination strategy to what Michael calls a containment strategy? It, it makes me think, Jack, you know, and I've been saying this since March, actually, we don't need an election right now. I, I actually believe it should have been delayed longer because it's really hard to have a mature conversation about this without it feeling political, isn't it? But, it, you know, it seems to me that you... I, I was talking to um, global economist Jeff Sachs this week on a, on a webinar. Now, he's heading the Lancet uh, COVID Commission about how do we suppress or eliminate mm. the, the vaccine, uh, the, the virus, you know, how do we get a vaccine and so on. He said that um, a vaccine... The may, there may be a few vaccines around next year, but they're not going to be uh, that effective. They might be partially effective. We're going to take a long time before before it's rolled out and so on. So we're hearing this everywhere. So I think that, that we need to have a conversation about whether or not elimination is the long-term strategy and whether or not we can look at some kind of suppression. Um, Taiwan is interesting, mm. isn't it? Because, um, you know, Dr Nick Wilson was saying, you know, uh, um, we're going to think about, uh, um, you know, fewer people in restaurants and bars and so on. And I think Taiwan, they've, I think they have kept the bars and the restaurants open, but they've got social distancing. They're all wearing masks and so on. So there is a way, and it's not just health versus the economy either. It's actually, you know, our health versus our ability to keep being able to pay for other health issues, pay for education, keep our revenue going. We don't want a 90% a, a economy, mm. is what economists are calling it, where we can't pay for stuff, you know, we can't actually look after people. The, yeah, I mean, the problem, though, with a, with a containment strategy is that inevitably you know, we are opening ourselves up to, to bigger health problems, and it's very hard to get direct comparisons with other countries overseas because the capacity, of course, for our health system to deal with mm. more cases of COVID-19 in our community isn't that of many other countries overseas, Michael. It is a very difficult balance, isn't it, to, to, to consider what the health impacts might be if we do go to a containment strategy. But if you, if you stop and look, you know, for a start, we're not like France or Germany where we're surrounded by neighbours and have mm. a border problem. We're isolated down here. And I want to come back to the point I made before. Because if everybody did their bit around containment, the consequence may easily be elimination. But we all need to, to do things better than what we've been doing. And to me, containment, mm. to me, is, is widespread. It isn't just about the government. It is about all of us taking some responsibility. Yeah. I think, I think though, Jack, that the point is we may not have a choice. It, it's not like, I mean, obviously the first choice is elimination. That's what we all want. But if we can't secure the borders at 100%, and let's face it, I don't think this is a competency issue for the government. I think it might be a strategy issue. It just may not be possible to guarantee that nothing gets through that border. I mean, they've thrown the Defence Force at it. They've thrown every minister, Chris Hipkins. They've even thrown Heather Simpson, for goodness sake. 
make. So if, if a combination of all of that can't secure the border at 100%, it, it's not like we might be choosing these things. It may be something that we have to say, right, what is plan B? And I want to hear from people like Dr Nick Wilson. I want to know what does plan B look like? You know, how mm. if we have to contain and suppress the virus and learn to live with it for a number of years even, what does that look like? And right. that's the conversation we need to have. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Josie Pagani and Michael Barnett. Audrey Tang was a child prodigy who read classical literature before their fifth birthday and understood advanced mathematics by the age of six. Just like all of us, right? <laughs> After a career in computer programming, the former hacker, who identifies as being non-binary, was appointed a government minister in Taiwan, taking a particular interest in the role of digital technology in Taiwanese society. Taiwan has led the world in its COVID-19 management, of course. It never had to enter a lockdown. It uses cell phone towers to keep tabs on people in self-isolation and even pays its citizens a small stipend to quarantine. I asked Audrey Tang just how Taiwan's government used technology to handle coronavirus. The most important technology is, of course, soap, uh, hand sanitation. That's number one. Uh, but following very closely is the idea of everybody wears masks. Uh, we have a numeric model that shows if uh, more than three quarters of people wear masks um, all day, then the R value will be under one, meaning that the virus uh, will not spread in the community. And so uh, we started a mask rationing process early on in the February. Uh, by April, more than 95 percent of Taiwanese population have access to medical masks. Uh, and so I think uh, the combination of physical distancing, mask use, and then the soap uh, is very important. And also we have a quarantining policy at a border, uh, very much like New Zealand, uh, where we put people in 14 days quarantine. They can choose a physical quarantine, in which case it's in the quarantine hotels, or digital quarantine, in which case their phone is placed uh, in what we call a digital fence. But there's no app or GPS or Bluetooth or anything. It's just the cell phone tower that's measured by triangulation so that we send an SMS if your phone ever runs out of battery or if the phone of the quarantine people uh, breaks out of the 50 meter or so radius. And that's how it works. Uh, and so because there's no app uh, need to be installed, people find it intuitive because we've been doing this for earthquake warnings and flood warnings for quite some time now. So just to explain that in a little more detail, when someone is in quarantine, their cell phone is used as effectively an electronic uh, location device so that if they stray out of a quarantine area, authorities are notified. Yeah, the SMS uh, will be sent to local household managers and police institutions. Uh, and so if that person indeed breaks the quarantine, then instead of the like 33 US dollars per day stipend, uh, they will pay us back a thousand times more uh, as a fine. Uh, so people tend not to break out of the quarantine. But what if they don't carry their cell phones? Well, if they break out of quarantine and they don't carry their cell phones, of course, uh, they get discovered eventually. Uh, but if the cell phones uh, stay, for example, too long uh, in the same um, distance, uh, then we send an SMS to check uh, whether they are feeling well, whether they're asleep and things like that. And so there's chatbots also uh, that checks on the person's um, like mental well-being, very important, during the 14 days. Uh, and so we thank them for their contribution. But if they don't pick up the phone or reply to the chatbot messages for a while, then we know that, that somebody is probably not uh, close to their phone. So in a sense, technology is used to support people who are in quarantine, but also to monitor people in quarantine. 
That's right, because we take care of their kind of psychological needs uh, to be cared uh, and so on. Uh, but during those 14 days, as you said, uh, the whereabouts of the location is used uh, to track essentially uh, their whereabouts. And that was just constitutional because uh, it's not an additional data collection. The telephone companies already have the phone's whereabouts anyway, and to a very rough uh, degree, like 50 meter radius. So we don't know which room you're in, but we do know if the phone uh, breaks out of the neighborhood. Technology again has been used to combat disinformation in Taiwan. Can you explain how that's worked? Yeah, certainly. Uh, in Taiwan, our counter disinformation strategy uh, is very simple. It's called humor over rumor because uh, we witnessed that both during the election and also during the pandemic, there's a lot of intentional public harm uh, messages being circulated on the social media. For example, um, there was a case where people said that the tissue paper is running out because, and I quote, it's the same material as medical masks. And because we're ramping out the production from 2 million a day to 20 million and they will soon run out of tissue papers, unquote. And because of that, people run out and panic buy. Uh, and we discovered that the outrage field uh, spread maybe has a R value of three, meaning that every hour, each person on average shared to three other people on social media. And if we can, within a couple hours, roll out a message that has a higher R value, then we can actually uh, combat the disinformation by making sure that people laugh about this matter. And so our premier, Su Zhen Chang, uh, shared uh, this particular meme uh, here, and you can see him, uh, his backside, his bottom, yeah. wiggling it a little bit in very large font saying, each of us only have one pair of Botox, uh, and therefore uh, a wordplay because uh, stockpile twin sounds the same as Bud's uh, twin. And so by literally making himself the butt of a joke, um, everybody laugh about it. And once you laugh about it, it's actually unable for a person to also feel outrage about a certain thing. And so they will be uh, calm and read this uh, table that says uh, very clearly that uh, the, the tissue papers are made out of South American materials, and then medical masks are made out of domestic materials. There's no way that producing one would uh, interfere with the production of the other. And it really worked. It maybe has an R value of five or seven. Uh, so uh, at the end of the weekend, uh, the panic buying stopped, and people remained uh, calm and collected. So the humor spreads faster than the rumor. It's interesting That's to right. compare um, Taiwan's situation with New Zealand's. Relative to most countries, New Zealand has done well, but masks mm -hmm. are only mandatory at our current alert level on public transport and in some public places. Mm -hmm. And our uh, contact tracing app is a voluntary app for cell phones at this stage. What advice would you give to policymakers in New Zealand? The way that we roll out the mask use is actually by popular demand. If you ask random people on the street in Taiwan, they will say that when CECC said um, back earlier in the year that for healthy people, there's no need to wear a mask in a well-ventilated place, people wore masks anyway. Uh, and so uh, our mask use uh, is based on the popular demand of the country providing sufficient medical masks for everyone so they can wear it comfortably uh, all day long. Uh, and I think it's uh, really helped by this public message uh, by the spokesdog or Zongchai of the CECC. Uh, you can see the spokesdog uh, putting their hand to their mouth uh, and saying that, why do you wear a mask? Well, you wear a mask to protect you from your own unwashed hands. And this is a great message 
that connects uh, washing hands with soap and mask wearing together. And it's also easier to explain rather than explaining about the critical mass, the three quarters and things like that. It's very intuitive. Like uh, if you forget to wash your hands, the mask protects you from your own hands. And so I think that message can also get people into a more creative mood. For example, we have people calling our toll-free number saying, oh, they discovered a way for the traditional rice cooker to kill the virus but not disrupt uh, the mask. So it can be reused a couple times. And uh, we did our own experiment uh, in the CECC and eventually found that to be true. Now, um, international study also said you can do the same uh, if you don't add water to the traditional rice cooker that can clean not only medical masks but also N95 uh, as well. So that's social innovation. And we also made sure that um, masks become a fashion item. That's also something maybe the ministers about around culture <laughs> can help. Uh, there was a case in April where a young boy caught the 1822 saying that uh, when we ration mask, all he got was pink medical mask, and he doesn't want to go to school because of it. Uh, and the very next day, everybody in the CECC, including Minister Chen Shizhong, the commander, wore pink medical mask in a show of solidarity. Uh, and the minister even said that Pink Panther uh, was his favorite childhood role model or something. Uh, and so uh, the boy became the most hip boy in the class, and pink mask become kind of a fashion icon. Audrey, it is a great pleasure to speak. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you, and live long and prosper. It's Audrey Tang. After the break, amidst the COVID-19 madness, a story you might have missed. A plan to reform the way we manage our drinking and wastewater that could have massive implications for councils. They want the community to give up sovereignty and give up their assets to be managed by someone in Wellington. Hawkey Mayanor, welcome back. Sign our memo and we'll give you cash. That's the deal for councils who have until tomorrow to commit to the first step of the government's three waters reform, a plan to improve drinking water along with waste and stormwater. If they sign up, councils will get a share of an infrastructure fund worth $750 million. But Fina Owen reports while the money would be welcome, there's deep suspicion amongst some mayors that there's another agenda at play. I think it's coming, to, uh, coming at us like a freight train. Everyone in New Zealand is going to be significantly affected by this. This is probably the most significant change that local government has faced in maybe three or four decades. Masterton District Councillor Tina Nixon. This is not a democratic process. She's talking about the three waters reform born out of the Havelock North water crisis, an overhaul of the way we manage drinking water, wastewater and stormwater. Minister for Local Government, Nanaya Mahuta. The long-term objectives of the Three Waters uh, uh, programme is to ensure that we've got a world-class uh, water network as well as a service delivery uh, system so that no matter where you live in the country, you're assured of safe, healthy drinking water. Kaipara Mayor, Jason Smith. If you say, guess what, we're going to talk about the Three Waters reform, everyone's eyes glaze over. Masterton's Mayor Lynn Patterson agrees. It's boring to them until you turn off the water or stop them flushing the toilets and then it becomes hay. Most ratepayers don't know about Three Waters because the discussion has been between government and councils. The Three Waters could eventually be managed by a small group of centralised authorities. First step, the Memorandum of Understanding, which once signed, will release funding for infrastructure. 
Councils will be taking this up. I think they've been really uh, given an offer that they can't refuse here. We're not going to say no to $4.4 million and we will work in good faith. From up here I'm overlooking three separate council areas, Masterton, Carterton, South Wairarapa, all with their own water assets. And now that they've all signed the MOU, they'll get their cash. Three separate amounts based on their population and other variables. Yeah, but the money stinks to high heavens uh, because it's basically a political bribe for us to buy into a process and we don't really know yet what the rules are going to be around the next stages of this process and what the penalties will be on local, uh, local, uh, local territorial authorities who don't buy into this process. We've been told that if we were to say no to signing the Memorandum of Understanding that within 18 months central government would come along and say well we're taking your water resources anyway. Public policy consultant Peter McKinlay. If councils don't voluntarily agree to merge their operations to create that, then government has to legislate. And that's a tough one because if you look at the political will for this kind of change over the past 10 years, the previous national government couldn't do this though it tried. Masterton is known for its well-managed water assets. They are model systems used to train technicians from outside the region. So the council has some massive decisions ahead. We won't go to that stage until we know that there is benefit to our ratepayers. They want the community to give up sovereignty and give up their assets to be managed by someone in Wellington. The model that's being proposed to us is that from Takao all the way in the far, far north, to, to Kōpuru here, all the way to, to Kofata, south of Auckland, all those places are going to be run by one water company. Now, there's no local representation in any of that. I think it's part of a bigger picture, which is actually quite critical. This is about how New Zealand is governed. We're not just centralising water. We're doing it to the health service with the Simpson Review recommendations. It's happening with Polytechs. There's a general move to concentrate decision-making power in larger centres, especially Wellington. But once the reforms roll out, will a more centralised water network cost the ratepayers more? Financially, hard to tell. I suspect costs generally will go up. Well, the ratepayers currently paying for a, for a system that is uh, where they've got leaky pipes. They've got they um, you know in terms of the safety of drinking water, there's a lack of assurance uh, in that space. So, you know, I think when the ratepayer starts to consider what the benefits of this reform program will deliver, those are the things that New Zealanders value. The immediate fear for some councils is that losing water assets will result in the establishment of super councils. Amalgamation by stealth. I actually wonder if this is a Trojan horse that's so absolutely boring to everybody, a Trojan horse for something that's much more serious that we can't yet know what that is. Oh look, I totally reject. I, I totally reject that view. This is actually one of the long-term issues that has been neglected for far too long. And if we don't try and do something significant around improving our water infrastructure network, then we are actually dooming the next generation to an insufficient uh, situation where they'll be boiling their drinking water. People will get sick from swimming in their rivers and the like. So we've really got to do something significant. But 
But there are dangers, says this local government expert, if the people are not involved in the changes. And I can easily imagine that we'll have social media saying this is all a conspiracy so that government can put fluoride in all our water and then put something else in and something else and something else again. And by the way, it'll be sold out to the Americans or the Chinese. And social media is going to have a field day with those kinds of rumours, and I don't think anyone's thinking about how to mitigate that. And the way to mitigate, again, is to bring communities in so they're part of the decision. So with three waters, what happens next? Going to a smaller number of multi-regional entities is the conversation in front of us, uh, enabling councils to sign up to this uh, initiative through uh, the MOU means that we're engaging pe uh, the sector in the conversation. The simple fact is what should happen next is that central government should come out and explain to all the people of Aotearoa exactly what the plan is and where this is headed. Fina Owen with that report. After the break, live from Florida, a Donald Trump supporter on why she's backing the president to win again. Formerly nominated to be the Republican candidate, he's laid out his pitch for another four years in the White House. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. Two months from the US election, President Donald Trump has made his formal pitch for another four years in office. My fellow Americans, tonight with a heart full of gratitude and boundless optimism, I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. In a new term as President, we will again build the greatest economy in history, quickly returning to full employment, soaring incomes, and record prosperity. You remember last week we spoke to a Florida Republican who has decided to vote for Joe Biden in this year's election. This week, we're joined by a Republican who's steadfastly supporting President Donald Trump. Betty Hensinger is the president of the Golden Triangle Federated Republican Women's Club in Mount Dora, Florida. Betty, thank you for being with us on Q&A. What did you think of the message at the Republican convention this week? I thought the convention and the message was incredible. We watched it with such enthusiasm. So many normal Americans appeared in that convention. It was just outstanding. What do you mean by normal Americans? Well, a lot of conventions in years gone by, it's one politician after another, after another, and Donald Trump had every night uh, people that are from everyday walk of life doing and saying what their lives were like and how they've been impacted by what President Trump has been doing or by what the Democrats have been doing. It was something that I've never seen in my lifetime before to see so many people from varying backgrounds appear before the American public like they did. Betty, have you always been a Donald Trump supporter? And what do you like about the president? I like the fact that he doesn't have to do this job. He doesn't have to be beholden to anybody. He doesn't have to do anything uh, for lobbyists, for other politicians. He seems to be working completely for the American public and for the American good. And I think that that is something that Republicans have been wanting for quite some time. 
has your life improved under President Trump's presidency? Absolutely, absolutely. I am a realtor for 20 years and uh, in 2008 till 2015, all of the real estate industry in Florida just suffered drastically. And we have seen many, many increases in, present, in recent years. And um, the, just the mood of the country has been mm. improved. Betty, I know that Florida has been suffering desperately uh, from the effects of COVID-19. America has the most COVID-19 deaths of any country in the world. And if I, if I cast my mind back to February, I see President Trump said then, quote, we have it very much under control. And then he said, we're going to be pretty soon at five people with the virus. It could be just one or two people with the virus. Do you think that the president is partially responsible for the number of people who have died in America? Not at all. Um, I'm a person who believes in states' rights and states' responsibility. And the president did what he could do from a federal standpoint. And then a lot of our governors and a lot of the people working within each state um, had the task of uh, making certain that their state was um, taken care of. And a lot of states didn't do, in my estimation, what perhaps they should have done. Um, it was really, it's been really hard on the United States to have been shut down since mid-March. Mm. And we only, we still are for all practical purposes. There's about 50% of the businesses are still not able to do full capacity. Mm. And in many states, a lot of businesses are not open at all. But the federal government can't be uh, the, the entity that takes care of all people in all places. That's mm. not how this country was formed. That's not how this country should be run. The mm. federal government has certain uh, responsibilities according to the Constitution, and the states have more responsibilities, and the counties and the cities mm. have even more responsibilities. And so I think government closest to the people is always the best, because then we can safeguard and watch government when it's a federal government that is so powerful. We have no way to control or to watch what's going on. Betty, again this week we have seen tension and violence in American streets. Do you sense that America is more divided than in the past? No. I think that the United States of America is more together than it has been in the last 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a small population that wants to disrupt our election and wants to disrupt our economy and our way of life. And I think that the news media in our country gives them way too much um, news coverage. Mm. I think it's a very small group of people that are creating problems within the communities. And unfortunately, the states have not been uh, addressing them perhaps as they should. And Betty, finally, if the results in November don't go the way you hope they will, will you accept those election results? Will you trust this election? I think that that's the way that Americans always do. We believe in the, uh, um, the peaceful transfer of power. Mm. But I'm, ho I'm real hopeful that Donald Trump will win back the presidency and we will have four more years of economic expansion. And I'm real hopeful, I'm real hopeful that we'll take back the House this time because that has been a real difficult situation 
to have nothing be accomplished in the last four, or relatively nothing be accomplished in the last four years. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us, Betty. That is Betty Hensinger. Thank you for reaching out to me. My pleasure. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou i Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is next. Hei tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday. Good night. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.